I wonder what you would say the greatest problem that our country faces is. Of all the problems, of all the dilemmas, all the threats, all the dangers that you can think of, what is the greatest problem that this country faces? Is it crime? Is it poverty? Is it overpopulation or the economy? Is it climate change? Is it Brexit? <laughs> Name nodded his head. Is it corrupt rulers? Is it atheistic worldviews or ungodly agendas? No. The greatest problem that this country, that this world faces is the wrath of a holy God against wicked sinners. <coughs> and since the wrath of God against sinners is the greatest problem, then surely the greatest thing you can possess and the most necessary thing you can possess, the most wonderful thing that you can possess is saving faith. Now this is the seventh in our series looking at what Paul had in mind when he wrote in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 where he urged the church in Philippi to strive together for the faith of the gospel, strive together for the faith that comes from believing the message of the gospel. So this series is asking and answering the question, what is it that makes up the faith of the gospel? What are the truths that Paul is urging them to strive together in? And so far, we've looked at the Bible, the reliable collection of historical documents that is the word of God. And so because of that is the grounds for everything that we believe and gives us all that we need for life and all that we need for godliness. We've looked at salvation, our desperate need for it and all that Christ did to secure it. We've looked at the call, both the preaching of that message of salvation and God's awakening of a person's heart to hear and understand the message. And last week we saw what it means to be born again, having that message become your experience as God changes your heart and makes you pass from death to eternal life, where God uproots you from this sinful world and plants you firm in Christ. And all of these things have largely been God's work, what he does for you and in you. But this morning, we're now going to move to look more at what our part in this is. What is our response to the message of salvation? What should it be? Namely, this morning, the fact that you are saved through your faith. Now, a few weeks ago, at the preacher training group that meet fairly regularly here at Belvedere, we talked about how difficult it can be to define some of these terms that we find in the Bible. Words like faith, words like repentance. And we all know what they are, most of us, but how do you put into words what these mean to encapsulate all of their meaning? Now, this morning, I'm defining faith to be a heartfelt belief, confident trust, 
and hopeful reliance upon God alone, grounded upon who he is and what he has promised, from which faith comes a change of desires and actions, through which faith God graciously saves you. But before we look at faith itself, let's look at what it means to be saved through faith. We're going to answer two simple questions this morning. The first more brief, the second more in-depth. The first question will be, what does being saved mean? We've looked at this briefly and in detail over the last few weeks, but we'll look at it briefly this morning. What does being saved mean? And then secondly, what does having faith mean? Now, before we begin, maybe you're a Christian and you're thinking maybe this morning is more for those who don't know Christ. And we're simply covering ground that you're sorted on. Maybe you don't need to listen that much. Well, in the school where I work a few weeks ago, we had a compulsory two-hour safeguarding training meeting. And all the staff were there. We didn't cover anything new. All the staff were bored. We'd all heard it before. We'd all heard it a hundred times before. And even the lady giving the presentation said, I know we all know this, we've just got to get through it. We just have to sit and listen. But don't ever feel that way when we read the Bible, when you hear sermons, because you need this every day. If you didn't need this every day, then why would Paul bother urging the church in Philippi to strive together for the faith of the gospel? Surely they're sorted. They have everything they need. But Paul knows that they needed it. So keep listening. First question. What does it mean to be saved? What does being saved mean? What are we saved from? What are we saved to? Now, it's a popular Christian saying, isn't it, that Jesus saves. In fact, we just sung. We have heard the joyful sound. Now, come on. We have heard the joyful sound. Spread the tidings all around. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command. Now, those two words are in music, they're in books, they're on t-shirts, they're on bracelets, but hardly anyone says what Jesus saves from. There's no point saying that he saves if you don't know what he saves from. So what is it? We've already mentioned. He saves us from the wrath of a holy God against sinners. Well, how, how do we know that? Where do I get that from? Well, let's turn to two passages. You can turn there or listen. They'll be on the screen. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Paul writes, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from wrath, meaning good and holy anger, through him, through Christ. Second passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul writing again. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. See, if God is good and holy and almighty, and in fact, even better, since God is good and holy and almighty, what should he do with wicked sinners? Well, what he should do is what he has declared to do. And that is to pour out his wrath upon Upon what? Upon sin? Sinners. No, not everyone who would call themselves a Christian would tell you this. And you'd be amazed at how many Christians or those who call themselves Christians there are across the UK who would believe that it's despicable and sickening to believe that Jesus died to save sinners from the wrath of God. They would reject that. Why? Because to them, it's unacceptable and unloving that God is full of anger and wrath, even though God describes himself that way. They would say, how could God be like that? How could God hate and be angry at people and punish people? No, not my God. You know, the battle to uphold and cherish the true doctrines of the Bible wasn't simply fought 500 years ago with Martin Luther and all the other reformers in the past. The battle needs to continue to be fought by me and you today. You see, before Luther was converted... He was so overcome and overwhelmed by the wrath of God and the judgment of God that he couldn't see his forgiveness and his grace. Today, so many Christians are overwhelmed by the love and grace of God that they can't see and even refuse to accept the wrath and the judgment of God. It's a different battle that we face, but it's a fight nonetheless. And sometimes the most loving thing to do is say the most difficult truth. See, your sin against God is so horrendous that God cannot allow you in his sight. And therefore, God cannot allow your sin to go unpunished. Even the slightest taint of sin is so despicable before God that it's like a heinous act of treason against the one who gives us breath and life. And therefore, God's anger burns against sin and against those who sin. That's you and that's me. His anger must burn against you because of his amazing goodness. If God wasn't angered, and outraged by evil and wrongdoing, then he wouldn't be good. If he simply let slide sin and let sinners go unpunished, then he would not be the good God that he says he is. He must punish sin because of his goodness. You think God's heart is a heart of wrath and anger? It is. But... It's also filled with gracious mercy. And in fact, it's overflowing 
with gracious mercy so that the very God who should judge you and condemn you is the very God you run to in order to be saved from condemnation. In running to God, love and peace come to you. But in running from God, you simply run towards terror and dismay. And yet peace and joy can be yours. How? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly gave up his own life. Why? In order to deliver sinners from God's coming wrath. How? By taking it himself. This ought to excite you more than nothing else. That God, the one who must judge and punish any sin in his sight, who could have upheld his justice, upheld his justice by condemning you to hell to suffer for an eternity, but instead chose to uphold his justice by crushing his son in your place so that you could walk free. It's as if there's a cup hanging above each of our heads that has our name engraved. And every time we sin, another drop of God's wrath is placed into it. And Romans says we're storing up our own iniquity. And one day God will pour out that cup. The question is, will it be poured over you or will Christ have already taken it? You see, God chose in his mercy and love to pour out his wrath upon Christ instead so that you can not only walk free, but be adopted as God's own child with him as your father. That's why we call it amazing grace. Though your sinful rebellion once made God your anger-filled enemy who must judge you a sinner, he directed all of that righteous anger towards Christ and can count his death on the cross as yours. And at the cross, Christ robes the unrighteous, unacceptable sinner with his own righteous holiness. And he made possible your acquittal and your renewal, welcoming you as his child instead of condemning you as his adversary. And that is the goal of the gospel. Why does God forgive sinners? Well, Peter tells us Christ suffered once for sins, the just person dying for the unjust people so that he could bring us to God. Of all the blessings of the gospel, of all the gifts, of all the amazing things that God gives, the greatest thing is himself. Now, the question is, how does all of that come about for me? How do I receive all of that? And the answer is through faith. One of the most famous passages in all of the Bible that shows this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I'm sure many of you could quote it. And the thing here to note is this. You don't deserve being saved and your faith doesn't earn being saved. Ephesians 2, 
8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And all of that is not of yourselves. Instead, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. You don't earn anything, but instead it's all a free gift of God. And how joyful we should be that it's God's gift, because God is a cheerful giver, Luke 12, 32, who gives good gifts to his people, Matthew 7, 11. God isn't like a stiff tap in your bathroom that you have to turn and turn and turn before you get a drop of water out of it. No, God's like a fountain that loves to shower his people with good things. And faith is the gift of God. But why faith? Why has God chosen saved through faith? Why not saved through love for God? Why not saved through prayers to God? Why not saved through knowledge? Charles Spurgeon, in a, in a sermon entitled Saving Faith, preached on the 15th of March, 1874, beautifully said, Faith is chosen by Christ to wear the crown of salvation because, let me contradict myself, it refuses to wear the crown. Faith is chosen by Christ to wear the crown of salvation because, let me contradict myself, it refuses to wear the crown. In other words, the reason that Christ has chosen faith as the way of saving us is because that's the only thing we cannot boast in as our own achievement. If it was our love for God, or if it was our prayers to God, or our knowledge of God, or our sorrow for sin, then we'd have something to boast in. We could say, I did it. But no. Paul tells us in Romans 4.16, that the reason that God has chosen faith is so that salvation might be according to grace, the undeserved favour of God. See, God has masterfully designed our salvation from our wrath that our sin deserves to be based on faith and our faith alone, because that's the only thing that we can't boast in because it's from God. Salvation is based on our faith alone so that he remains sovereign, so that we can't mess it up by sinning, and so that our only boast is him. Isn't God gloriously clever and good and kind that we aren't saved by something that makes us look great, but we're simply saved through something God gives us so that he looks great. That's why we're saved by faith. But what does it mean to have faith? That leads us on to our second question. What does having faith mean? I defined faith earlier as a heartfelt belief, a confident trust, 
and hopeful reliance upon God alone, grounded upon who he is and what he has promised, from which faith comes a change of desires and actions, through which faith God graciously saves you. And I base that definition partly on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, partly on Hebrews 11, 1, and also on my go-to place in the Bible to describe what it looks like to have faith, which is a passage we read before, Romans chapter 4. I think that this passage that talks about Abraham and his faith is, in my view, probably the best and clearest explanation and example of what true faith in God looks like in a person's heart. In the readings early in the service, we heard the event in Abraham's life where he was told by God to pack up everything he owned and leave his home. God said to him, move, Abraham, and keep moving. Don't stop until I tell you to, and I will make your descendants a great nation in the place where you go. And Abraham went. And then we come to Paul in Romans 4.18, who shows us Abraham, contrary to faith, sorry, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became a father of many nations according to what was spoken by God, so shall your descendants be. See, Abraham was a man who had a hopeful belief that went against human logic. We have a phrase in English that is to hope against hope. And that means to hope in vain, to cling to the slightest possibility that something might happen. But Abraham knew that he had God's promise on it. And that changed everything. Now, it didn't make sense to an outsider looking on at Abraham's life why he would do this. They'd say, why leave the life that you've built, all the possessions, all the reputation that you have in this area? Why are you suddenly picking everything up and moving, not knowing where you're going to? You're running blind, Abraham. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. And so Abraham chose to have a heartfelt belief and a confident trust and a hopeful reliance upon God because of his promises to him. And his faith resulted in something happening in fulfillment of God's promise to him. Look at verse 18 again. In hope, Abraham believed so that something was happening because of it, so that he became the father of many nations according to the promise that was spoken by God, so shall your descendants be. So God gave the promise to Abraham. Abraham believed it. He had faith and confidence in it, contrary to hope. And God fulfilled the promise. That's how faith works. Now, later on, three angels visited Abraham when he was around 100 and his wife, Sarah. 
who was 90 years old. And they told them that Sarah would give birth to a son. And after some initial laughter, Abraham waited. And in Romans 4.19, Paul explains, Not being weak in faith, Abraham didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own frailty and Sarah's barrenness. He didn't weaken in faith. The outsider again looks on at Abraham's life and says, Abraham, what is wrong with you? Why are you believing that this is going to happen? You're mad. There's no way that Sarah can have a child. Why are you so hopeful? Why are you so confident that this thing will happen? It's because Abraham's belief isn't upon himself. And it's not upon Sarah. But it's upon God alone. And since Abraham knows that God is forever faithful and forever trustworthy, then Abraham knows that any promise that God makes will also be forever faithful and trustworthy. And then in verse 20 of Romans 4, we get to what I think is the crowning glory of what we see as faith. Verse 20, Paul writes, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Abraham was given the promise of God and he didn't waver. He didn't pause or falter or hesitate. Why didn't he? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to perform what he had promised. That's what it means to have faith as a Christian. Being fully convinced that God will make good on his promise to on his promises to you through Jesus. It's having a deep confidence that the promises of God about your salvation will come true. And so you bank on them. And when the outsider at work or school or your family looks at your life and says, why are you putting all your hope in God, in something that you cannot see? Why are you wasting all your time and chasing a fairy tale? What do you say? What do you do? You do what Abraham did. You stand and you do not waver. Not listening to the thoughts of people, but listening to the promises of God. And so when Jesus promises in John 5.24, most assuredly I say to you, he who, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You hear that promise of God to you, and you stand firm in a heartfelt belief, in a confident trust and a hopeful reliance upon God alone, grounded upon who he is, how faithful and good he is, and what he has promised. So to use the words of Romans chapter 4, 
A Christian is someone who, contrary to hope, in hope, believes in Christ. So that you become a saved sinner, according to what was spoken by Jesus. He who believes in me has eternal life. A Christian is someone who does not waver at the promise of Jesus through unbelief, but is strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God has promised, granting you everlasting life, taking your judgment and passing you from death to life, he is able to perform. Simply put, it's trusting and resting upon Jesus alone that he can and will save through his death and resurrection. And then verse 22, what was the result of having faith for Abraham? Verse 22, he believed the promise and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. See, Abraham had no righteousness, no spiritual goodness of his own. In fact, no human does. But God chose in his grace to grant his own righteousness to Abraham because Abraham had faith in him. Faith is the thing that God takes hold of and saves you because of. A few verses before in Romans chapter 4, Paul writes, To the person who does not work, does not try and earn their salvation, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, then that person's faith is counted to them as righteousness. But now maybe you're wondering, Abraham never saw Jesus. Abraham never even knew a lot about him, probably. How can he believe and be saved by Jesus when Jesus hadn't even been born yet? What's the difference between how Abraham was saved and how I'm saved? What's the difference between Abraham's faith and my faith? Well, here's the difference. Imagine Chris, Warren and Jamie arranged to have breakfast at the Toby Carvery on Egbeth Road for their all-you-can-eat buffet breakfast. I'm sure they'd all love it. Now, Warren and Jamie arrive on time, but Chris is running late. So the two of them sit down at a table, and Jamie says to Warren, go ahead, you go and eat. I'm going to pay for it all. So Warren gratefully gets his food and eats, but has to leave early. Chris still hasn't arrived yet, but... Jamie calls the waiter over and pays for all of their meals. Eventually, Chris turns up and Jamie says to him, you go and eat, I've already paid for it all. One came before, one came later, but they've both been paid for by the same person. And so it is with Old Testament and New Testament salvation. Some came before, some came later, but they've all been paid for by Jesus Christ. And so Abraham puts his faith in God. And God, knowing the future redemption that Christ would 
secure, knowing Christ's future mission, grants Abraham God's own righteousness and salvation based on Christ. And likewise, you put your faith in God, knowing Christ's completed mission. And God grants you his own righteousness and salvation based also upon Christ. That's what we call justification by faith. But we'll save that for a few weeks' time in the series. So we've seen what it means to be saved. It's being delivered from the wrath of God against us because of our sin through Christ's death and resurrection so that he could bring us back to God. And we've seen what having faith means. It's a heartfelt belief, a confident trust and a hopeful reliance upon God alone. And it's not a blind faith. It's grounded upon who he is and what he has promised from which faith comes a change of desires and actions. We'll come back to that as we close. And through which faith, God graciously saves you. Now, let me take everything that we've looked at so far and illustrate it for you by adapting an analogy from Ray Comfort. It's your birthday and your family comes around for tea and you open all of their colourful cards and wonderful presents If you're in my house, you scrunch up the wrapping paper and you throw it at your brothers. You then get to the final present, a brown envelope from Auntie Maureen. And she hands you the envelope and inside it you find two plane tickets to any destination of your choice. That's brilliant, you say, as you look down at the tickets, but then... Your smile quickly crumbles into a forced grin as you realise that it's been booked with jet whizzy whizzy bang bang, the cheapest airline around. And so the day arrives when you and your friend, who's reluctantly agreed to fly with you, arrive at John Lennon Airport and you both nervously board the plane. You shuffle your way down a cramped aisle, knocking your bags against the grubby headrests and catching your foot on a loose carpeted floor before you both finally crumple into your hard, worn-out seats. You turn and look at each other, the same way a pig would look upon bacon. And you try to settle down into the flight. The doors close, the plane starts down the runway, and eventually it heaves itself into the air and you're flying. Half an hour into the flight, the plane suddenly judders and jolts and the captain's voice comes over the crackling intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, we've lost power to the engines and are going down. Please reach under your seats. So frantically, you fumble around beneath your chair and pull out a small package and all your fears are dispelled. As your eyes widen, your heart leaps with joy and you find in your hands a brand new state-of-the-art parachute designed by the world's top aeronautical engineer. This parachute has been all over the news as the strongest and most reliable parachute ever created. You've heard the testimonies of those who've used it, who've been in the most dire circumstances, but have been saved by this very parachute with the designer 
giving his approval that it will never, ever fail and carry you safely to the ground. You look over to your friend, and to your delight, he has one too. The call from the captain goes out across the plain, put on the parachute, and you will be saved. You both hurry over to the door, and you confidently strap the parachute to your back. But to your confusion, your friend isn't doing the same. He's simply looking down at the parachute, holding it in his hands. What are you doing, you ask? Our death is imminent. The parachute's your only hope. I don't know if I can trust it, your friend says. I've never seen it in action. How can you put all of your faith in this one parachute? You haven't seen the parachute work either. You've never used a parachute in your life. All you have is the word of the designer and the word of those who've used it. But you choose to have a heartfelt belief, a confident trust, and a hopeful reliance upon the parachute alone to save you from the crash. It's a faith which is grounded upon who the designer is and what he's promised. You have no hope other than to put all of your trust in this parachute because it's the one thing that has the ability to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Only the parachute can save you and so you put your faith in it and you jump and it doesn't fail. Do you know that because of the sin in your life, the life that you live is like a plane bound to crash. You have no hope other than to put all of your trust in Christ because he is the one person who has the ability to do for you what you cannot do yourself. Only Christ Jesus can save you and so you put your faith in him and you jump and he doesn't fail. Now, in closing, there's one part of the definition that we started with that we haven't looked at yet. Remember what we said, faith is a heartfelt belief. It's a confident trust and a hopeful reliance upon God alone, grounded upon who he is and what he has promised. From which faith comes a change of desires and actions. A change of desire, what we love and what we don't love. And our actions, what we do, what we think. They come from having this faith. In other words, this faith produces works. We're saved by God alone, yes, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, yet the faith is a producing faith. The nature of the faith that saves is that it produces something. The kind of faith that God saves us through isn't a faith that just is stagnant and sits and does nothing, but the kind of faith that God saves us through is a faith that brings a change in us. Martin Luther himself said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
And it's never alone because it's always producing something. From faith comes a change of desire and actions. From faith comes loving God and obeying God. That's what the Bible calls a Christian's fruit or works. Now, I've brought with me a torch. Now, light is a necessary part of a torch. It can't be a torch without light. That's the point of a torch. But what causes the torch to shine? What causes a torch to shine? A bulb? It's got a bulb. It's not shining. A battery. The battery is at the heart of a torch. Just like faith is at the heart of a Christian. The battery alone powers the torch. Yet the battery is never alone because it's always accompanied by the light. You can't put the battery in without the light coming out. You can't have faith in you without works coming out. James says in James chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, if a battery isn't accompanied by light and doesn't produce light, then that shows you it's dead. If your faith, your trust and reliance upon God doesn't produce the light of works, the light of obeying and loving God, then that shows you it's dead. If you don't produce fruit, then the faith you have isn't genuine because the kind of faith that God saves us through is a producing faith. Or to use a more biblical example, a Christian is like a tree that produces fruit. Now let's take an apple tree. Do the apples make an apple tree an apple tree? No. We don't have neutral trees that don't have anything on them. We sit and think, oh, what could it be? It might have apples, it might have bananas, and then then it's an apple tree. No. An apple tree isn't an apple tree because it has apples. An apple tree is an apple tree because of the inner makeup of the cells of the tree. Not that it produces fruit. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is the inner change that God has created in you, changing your heart, causing you to be born again, not the works that you produce. But if an apple tree has a disease or is infected by insects, then it will bear rotten fruit. And if the apple tree is dead, then it doesn't bear fruit at all. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But conversely, a simple faith that flows out into love for Jesus and obedience to him is alive. It's great gain. 
So, you and me, what are we to do? Maybe you have faith, but you can't see any love for God, any obedience in your heart. Maybe you have faith and you do see this fruit and you want to keep going. Maybe you have no faith and you've never relied upon God for your salvation. What should you do? Well, for the most part, the answer is the same. Don't try to merely change your outward behavior, sellotaping apples onto your branches, but focus your attention on watering the root. Look again to Jesus and be warmed by how faithful, how tender, how gracious, how patient, how welcoming and compassionate he is. And be amazed that he would give up his life for you to make a wretched sinner a redeemed saint. And as you do that, pray that the God who loves to give would grant you the gift of faith and that he would stir up in you the fruit of love by his spirit. And then rest, maybe for the first time. Rest in a heartfelt belief, confident trust, and a hope-filled, hopeful reliance upon the risen Christ, upon God alone, with a faith that is grounded upon who he is and all that he promises to you. His promise that whoever believes in him has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And through faith, you will be saved. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your great mercy and your goodness. We thank you for your own faithfulness. And we praise you so much that you are a God who rejoices in giving and you love to give and you give faith as a free gift of salvation, knowing that there's nothing at all in us that we can do to earn or deserve salvation. I pray that you would give us each a heart that loves you, that we would treasure you above all the things in our lives and that we would fix our eyes and our gaze upon you and may that be the fuel in our tanks to spur us on to obey you and to spread this news through all the world. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We'll stand and sing one last hymn as we close. How can I now explain this love God gives abundantly? I stand and sing.